Welcome back to Playopolis, a podcast about the places people play. Thanks for joining us. My name's Troy Innocent, and I'm again recording this from Melbourne, Australia, where we continue to quietly restart our collective worlds. Last year, when researching links between speculative fiction and playable cities, I came across the term hope punk. It emerged on the internet a few years ago to describe worlds and stories that are neither grimdark, that is, dystopian apocalyptic nightmares, or noble bright, worlds where everyone waits for an all-powerful hero to save the day. Personally, this attitude made me more ready for what was to unfold in 2020. Both Grimdark and Noble Bright present fatalistic worlds, while narratives identified as hope punk are stories of everyday people, communities and collectives, rather than those of exceptional individuals. Stories that are situated in multiple ongoing processes of change and becoming, rather than linear progress toward a single last and final goal. They are stories that continue through small wins, endurance, survival, and persistence against the odds, rather than grand narratives of sweeping change and ultimate victory. It's a way of being in the world with complexity and multiplicity. To paraphrase a common expression, Grimdark sees the glass half empty, Noble Bright as half full, while Hope Punk is happy that there is water in the glass at all, then starts imagining what we could do with it. It feels like this is the mood in Melbourne right now. We are returning to restart the world in this episode of Playopolis, the second part of a conversation that took place during Games Week about the reopening of Melbourne, bringing together four people who work with the city as a material, a landscape architect, public artist, placemaker, and game designer. Hope Punk characterizes the mood of this discussion while recognizing the immense impact of the pandemic personally, socially, economically, while also seeing a way forward, recognizing small changes for the better, reconnecting with local community and grassroots action. Through examples of their practice, Millie Catlin, Fiona Hillary, Vali Morford and Pete Vigent discuss ways forward through gentle, playful ways of restarting the world post-lockdown. Weird Beers and Trash Games, a Bar SK story, features in the second part of this episode. Bar SK was part of the Melbourne game scene for three years. Equal parts bar and gallery, a place where people would play, experience, reflect, chat and drink. But first, let's restart the world. So how do we do this? So these project sites come about generally because there are uncertainties about a site or a building's future. So we occupy these places while they are literally undergoing transition and we see ourselves as being part of this transition. So we establish a program, we design or adapt to physical buildings and then we run it for a number of years. We host and co-produce a whole range of different programs and while we're doing this we're getting to work to make the site or the building available for others to use. And I should say I'm one of a team and we're ops managers, curators, architects, programmers and caretakers. And we position ourselves behind these project sites and this really comes from sort of our practice methodology and in support of the programs and people who use them. And we understand these places as platforms and we say yes to as many things as possible. So just in the context of this discussion, we exist in transition. We have learnt through necessity to be okay with uncertainty. We respond to lessons we learn along the way. We are responsive and we're incremental because we have to be. And we're constantly learning through observation. And then we're constantly adjusting or adapting 
the baseline from this position. So as we peer out from the shadows of COVID, the approach I've described here is helping us navigate these times. And beyond this, I must say I'm really struggling for answers at the moment. This situation is playing out at so many scales and in every facet of our lives as workers, as researchers, as family members, as bodies, as members of a society and as members of many communities. There are things to be carefully observed really everywhere we look. And one thing I just want to conclude by saying that I find interesting about observation is that it takes time. And as much as possible, it's good to be able to strip back existing assumptions, to be in a place and to pause and to look carefully and to be okay with uncertainty and to be ready when the time is right to respond and take the next incremental step. That's Millie Catlin talking about her experiences with uncertainty, transition and observation when developing provisional creative infrastructures. She's an architect who works with large site-based projects such as testing grounds, site works and the quarry. I wanted to kick off by with a provocation to the audience today to engage in this um, process, this wild process of becoming and welding and ask what happens when we consider public space not as a backdrop to our daily lives but as an entanglement of relationships, human and non-human, a complex living ecology. And we've seen so much rich discussion around that today already. But as we emerge from lockdown, let's make a collective manifesto. Millie kindly segued the manifesto in for us for public space. What kind of public space do you want to be part of? What creative contribution will you make? But I wanted to talk about this notion of the laboratory. It's a a space that we creatively investigate ourselves, others, human, non-human space. And it sort of creates this space for creative thinking and practices to articulate and reveal alternative stories of sight. Post-humanism, as most of you probably know, invites us to shift away from practices of human exceptionalism and think through the multiplicity of players in public space. And we use these works as a context for a range of interdisciplinary laboratories with artists, a bioscientist, a conservation scientist, a marine biologist, a park ranger, a landscape architect and a phenomenologist. The work was again was in gathering, being present, talking and thinking about ecologies of public space. Fiona Hillary is talking about her approach as an artist working in the public realm with both human, non-human and post-human relationships. She approaches the world as a laboratory, opening it up as a place for personal and intimate encounters. What does activation and placemaking look like in a post-COVID world? Well, I tell you what it looks like. It looks like adaptation. The world has been adapting faster than ever before. Who imagined that we would go boom, and next thing you know, um, half the universe would be suddenly working from home. I'm sure the audience is all joining us from home right now. How quickly did we pivot as a species? We are currently living a more local experience than ever before, where our walkable catchment is more important than ever before for local citizens. I've learned so much from my own neighbourhood due to COVID. I actually feel thankful for lockdown in some respects. Like I have discovered cafes, I have discovered treasures. I now actually recognise the face of my community. I never, I never recognised my neighbours before. We're all too busy rushing to and from work, rushing around the universe um, and heading out of my suburb to eat, to dine, to socialise. Now I do that all in my own suburb and I know it better than I ever have. And now I truly feel like a community member and I feel capable and empowered to help improve my local suburb for the local benefit of traders, 
in my own neighbourhood for the benefit of fellow community members because I'm seeing local community-led placemaking happen more than ever before. Every second house has something in the window, something hanging on the neighbourhood sort of fence, uh, whether it be a rainbow or a bear hunt or, or something else. I don't know how many households I've seen where they put a different joke up on their front fence every day. Like this is locally-led placemaking on a scale that I've never seen before and I'm loving that this new normal is hopefully here to stay. What else is happening in the world of activation? Co-design is central to Vali Morford's approach to placemaking, working together with community and other stakeholders to create authentic experiences of place. She's talking about a sense of opportunity found in her local neighbourhood during lockdown that has begun to inspire new approaches to her work. I started as a very young teenager in doing stuff called adventure education where I started creating games based on space. I started thinking about camps and how to use the entire space uh, of a summer camp and turn it all into a game board because I was really influenced by the video games of the 80s and 90s and trying to think through as a, a young video gamer, how do I transform these spaces into what I experience when I play a video game. And so I made this game uh, called, we made a game called Pack Manhattan, where we turn the area around Washington Square Park in Manhattan into a giant live action version of Pac-Man. And between those two games, I realized something that was kind of amazing, which is I had been making all of these games kind of out in the woods or out for large groups. And when we did it in New York, all of a sudden people were writing about it and they were talking about it and they were looking at it and they were interested in it. And I was like, oh, geez, this is really touching people. This is really changing the way people look at their streets, changing its magic. So I kept doing that. And I would do that at game festivals. I would do that, and which is why I started helping run the Come Out and Play Festival and is now, I'm now one of the co-directors of the Come Out and Play Festival. As a game designer, Pete Vigent approaches the city as a game board. We can also hear him talking here about his work with adventure education and experience design, approaches that he works with to create games and playful moments that bring people together in public space. During the pandemic, there has been an increased focus through necessity on home life, the local neighborhood, a sustained encounter with connections to space and place. At the same time, over the past decade, the mainstreaming of public space has been gaining momentum, resulting in a loss of local character and urban vibrancy. What strategies can we explore to counter the mainstreaming of public space? Could we draw upon people's increased engagement with the local what you're really trying to say there is that public experience is becoming homogenized. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is something which um, I'm gonna I'm gonna put my design professional hat on right now and say that there is nothing more boring uh, than walking into a space that was designed by one mind. The blandest thing ever. One person's vision, one person's mind is articulated. I call myself a reformed landscape architect. I spent 15 years working as a design landscape architect. I've seen the shittiest designs ever implemented um, and praised and win awards. There's this preoccupation with 
the sort of godlike design approach and, and, you know, this one mind and this one vision. But the reality is the greatest places are shaped by multiple iterations and many minds and decades of experience and iterations of time and layers and such. So the richness of public space, how wonderful public space is, I think is directly proportionate to the amount of iterations that it's seen. Um, because then many minds and many hands and many sets of fingerprints are layered all over it. I'm an architect, but I'm actually an architect really obsessed with infrastructure through working with the creative infrastructure team at Creative Victoria. I sort of came upon this idea of creative infrastructure, and I think some of the qualities that are really important about infrastructure in contrast to architecture is that there's an open-ended system. And there's, there is room for improvisation. And, and it comes to this idea that I talk about as a platform and a platform for others, a platform for agency. And these are, the, these are the kinds of things I come back to as an architect. It's sort of, yeah, dismantling of this idea of a building as a hero and instead a, an infrastructure as something that enables others. One of the qualities of urban play is engagement with the lived experience of place, ways of being that are embodied, situated and embedded in the world. By moving away from centralised urban planning policies and design for public space, how can we learn from everyday life, find other ways of recognising social and cultural value, bring more diverse voices into the conversation? I like the platform that gives agency and gives permission. I think that permission is what's lacking in a lot of ways. We should be careful a little bit to define a new normal as still a distance thing, because even though we've been hyper-local, there still is a major anxiety with the people that I outside see. And alleviating that anxiety when we're able to release it and and turn the dial down a little bit more, I think that that's going to change the needs of our public spaces. There's a lot of this stuff that is being built in my area that's very temporary. Once we can take down the the pieces of plastic in between all of the picnic tables, we will. And maybe we won't have picnic tables. Maybe we'll have one long table. So I'm watching to see where I could see the cracks that I could start pulling away the plastic when it's ready Mm. and getting people right next to each other so they can smell each other again, because I think that's important. Someone came over and gave me a cake. Like, no joke, someone gave me a cake. And they're like, we, we had so many of your tomatoes over summer. Here, I just baked you a cake. What happens is that that act of creativity actually gave people permission to have a conversation with each other they wouldn't have before. So suddenly they've got something to talk about. There's something going on in the neighbourhood which creates a bit more common ground, common experience, and routine actually fosters connectivity. So the more that you can see your neighbours, the more that they'll actually walk across the street to speak to you. If you feel like a stranger, they'll treat you like a stranger. If you feel normal, then, you know, you'll be part of the urban landscape. You'll be part of the biological landscape, in fact. So don't be afraid to use creativity and actually bring your life to the front of your house instead of the back. Go and eat your dinner on the front doorstep once a week and then see how many people stop and talk to you. Seriously, it's really simple to actually sort of break the ice with your community. It's, it's not hard. I'm with you. I built a, a ninja course in the front yard with the slack line and all that stuff for the kids. It is like a, a light to flies, you know, all of the parents will come down to our neighborhood so they can walk by slowly to see if we're all outside, if they can kind of 
see what this is all about. But I absolutely agree with that. And I would even take it one step further, which is that if you are in a place, if you can make tomato plants where people can take tomatoes, yeah. or if you can put something up where someone can contribute, you know, uh, collaborative compositions. Placemaking blends the built environment, location, community, urban design, infrastructure, people, history, and the local context to cultivate and shape public space. In contrast, urban play is situational and embedded. It remakes and reimagines place rather than making place per se. Are there more circular, blended, situated forms of placemaking, less master plan and more community action, gentler ways of restarting public space? It's kind of giving people permission, I think. I live by the adage that it's better to beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. And I think yes. in, in yeah. the context of the conversations we were having earlier today about local government and the unequal power that occurs, and I acknowledge that for one person transgressing local government laws, the impact on them might be very different to another person. So we have to keep these powers yes. very yes. in mind. But I, I'm a huge advocate um, of just doing it, just getting out there and doing it. The film that I made along the, the creek at Mooney Pond, the number of times I've been invited to come and comment on particular spaces and, and it might be from various people saying, it's just not very active. But if you look at the street art, it's alive and kicking. If you look at the graphing, the pieces, the tags, and down along that, that creek, um, it, it's renowned for um, pieces and tags. If things are done sort of thoughtfully and those conversations are open, I think people are really willing, government, at all levels of government and at all levels of organisations, people are actually really willing to sort of say, well, how can we make this something? How can we build on this little experiment that happened? And I think that attitude is really there at the core of a lot of council and, and state government attitudes. It's just maybe finding ways that those things can happen. Those kind of guerrilla tactics that we started with have really formalised and been the foundations of all the work we've done now. Yeah, so the Fed Square stuff is really interesting, but I think there is still a willingness to accept different modes of play and different modes of experimentation within a city. And probably now even more so that there's such, been such a hollowing out of our cities. I think those spaces need to be thought about, not just as empty spaces to fill, but actually genuinely places to think about a future, think about a possible future for these, for these places. Disruptions to the usual patterns of urban life reveal how these patterns become normalised and accepted as simply the way the city is. Urban play shares many of the strategies and goals of tactical urbanism in creating temporary interventions into daily urban life that not only show alternatives, but also let people try them out. I asked everyone if they saw any connections between urban play and tactical urbanism in critiquing and challenging public space. Yeah, it was that idea of actually just holding a place, not actually having to fill it with program or mm. dictate what's going to happen there, but actually just saying, hang on a sec, this is a space. And I really, really enjoyed your code of conduct, Troy, at the beginning, like this is a safe space. We will protect the values of it and we will hold it, but we will not fill it, you know. We will actually just hold it for others. And I think there's real contrast with the commercialisation of public space, which is all about filling it and treating the public like consumers. But I think there's something really valuable in that. And I, I just, yeah, I did want to mention, Fiona, I really enjoyed the way you spoke about that. I really resonate with those ideas of just saying, hang on a sec, we don't need more. We just need a space to be, to be handed over to others and just to see what happens and to be okay with not knowing. 
I get a little bit concerned about, I sort of see these like mass light installations that are going to happen all over the city and all this stuff. This is hard and, and we do need to bring people back into the city. I think that it's really important to not think that we need to put a million people outside at once in something big and ruin these neighborhoods that are coming together in really interesting and fantastic ways. There's no way of romanticizing what's happening over here, but there's a really interesting contrast in my town, which is a commuter town full of artists and technical developers and professionals that all were going to the city all the time, but then there are artists, so we are also a tourist location. People come up from the city to kind of spend a weekend where we, where we live. They're doing that more, but they're moving here. They, they don't want to live in the city anymore. No one wants to live in New York City anymore if they can afford not to. Urban play can be a strategy for remapping, resisting, and reimagining the world. What platforms, strategies, technologies, ideas can help make this happen? Can it be serious and fun? So I think that it's important to kind of embrace the fact that these places where people live and where they work and where they want to spend their time is kind of condensing, at least where I am. It's condensing into a smaller footprint and that we have more opportunity to have a bigger impact in people's lives there than necessarily building something that's gonna, or having something or creating these uh, moments where you have thousands and thousands of people who are there for a second. My big issue with New York City has always been that we could create the best thing in the world, whether it is permanent or ephemeral, and it's in New York City. And so it's surrounded by the best things in the world that are permanent and ephemeral all at the same time. Like there's, there's too much noise. And right now, these communities are noticing each other and I don't want to erase that. The metric of buns on seats is suddenly gone in public events. For people who are in sort of like doing projects in public where you've got to give those metrics over as part of your data, suddenly that metric has gone. I think that's extraordinarily liberating for us. It suddenly means we can be counting value in other ways because you literally can't have <laughs> these kind of like large numbers. I just see there's this slight little window of opportunity there to kind of get rid of that metric, which I'm quite excited about. One of my favourite endpoints at the moment is Haraway's proposition that how do we leave marks of care for the future and if ever that was relevant I think it's incredibly relevant now how do we make space and leave marks of care for the future because it's the little humans coming up through this too who have a, have generations to experience life through it's the space we live in so I'm a huge advocate of Haraway's takeaway of how we leave marks of care for the future. And Fiona, I have to add another Haraway thing that's been guiding me recently is the implosion project. So the idea of looking at one thing, one tiny thing, and in that tiny thing, seeing a huge web of connection and, and network and, I guess, impact through very small things. For me, that's guiding me at the moment. So how small can we go? And then what reach can that have? I would say uh, give everyone uh, at least 48 different colors of chalk. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Some fluoro lycra. Yeah, well, or like colored duct tape. I like that. Uh, that works. Um, contact paper and some um, spray paint. Teach people how to use power tools or how to garden. Yeah, gorilla gardening. I thought Valley had it right. Work in your front yard instead of your backyard. And if you, if you don't have a front yard, uh, work in someone else's front yard. 
Fantastic. And Thanks. start conversation. Yeah, yeah. Start conversations like this. Despite the harsh reality of this year, a sense of opportunity and hope comes together in these responses to the ways our cities have changed and are changing. It's a mood that may stay with us for some time as we collectively reflect and continue to respond to 2020. Playopolis is brought to you by 64 Ways of Being, a free augmented reality app that helps you see Melbourne through new eyes. 64 Ways of Being is the result of a collaboration between a team of artists, developers, designers, linguists, and many more from Melbourne's creative community. And each episode will hear from one of them. My name is Duani Baker, and today I'm speaking with researcher and science communicator, Rachel Vorwick from RMIT University to discuss some of the research that has gone into 64 Ways of Being. So Rachel, I was wondering if you could start by explaining what is 64 Ways of Being? It's a great question. I'll try my best to respond uh, in a really clear and simple way because it is such a big and complex project. 64 Ways of Being is an augmented reality app that makes the city come alive through augmented reality experiences. And each of those experiences highlights a word in another language that doesn't exist in English. So it's an untranslatable word that uh, relates to an emotion or feeling that doesn't have a direct translation in English. So the augmented reality experience helps you to understand that way of being in another language through augmented reality. Whoa, sounds intense. Sounds very immersive. Yes, (laughs) I forgot the word immersive, but yes, definitely. And it's a really great project. It's really, it's really complicated. It's bringing a lot of things together, but I think it just does a great job of doing something that no other project has tried to do before. Amazing. So tell me a bit more about what your role as a researcher has been on the project. So my role as the language researcher on 64 Ways of Being has been to collect as many untranslatable words as possible from the community in Melbourne, specifically from the, from different language groups and cultural groups in Melbourne. I remember thinking at the start, you know, I'm not the expert here. I'm just the person who's uh, linking this project together with Melbourne's multicultural community to make sure that they are represented and that the words that they have in their languages are included in this app. So my role has been to connect with as many cultural groups as possible. I think we're up to maybe 20 language groups now where I've done interviews with participants. And I'm asking them, what untranslatable words are there in your language that you feel don't have a direct translation in English? Specifically words that relate to an emotion or a way of being or feeling. The first part of the project was putting a call out to Melbourne's multicultural community and saying, hey, we want your words. We've got a survey that's open and that was in February this year. Yeah, yeah. We've got a survey open. We'd love to hear what words you think should be included in 64 Ways of Being. This app is made by Melbourne for Melbourne, so it needs to be created by the community yourselves. So... I think we're up to more than 200 words now that have been submitted in the survey and we shortlisted those 
and I've spoken to more than 20 people now uh, in a one hour long interview asking a little bit more about words from that particular language. I ask about, you know, what's your experience been with this word? Maybe the word in German, um, I, I won't pronounce this correctly, I can guarantee it, but it's Schwachtelpanik. Gonna get a lot of people laughing at me for that, but it's gate closing panic. And I just feel like this word encapsulates so many, so much of what so many of us are thinking right now, you know, <laughs> oh my gosh, there are opportunities closing around us. What am I going to do? I'm so panicked by that. I have to do it now or never, you know, that's gate closing panic. And there's sure. a word for that in German. We don't have a word for that in English. So, it, you know, it's asking about where people have had these experiences before and with those words, whether these words have been adopted in a new way in Australia compared to uh, the the word, I guess, where the word has, you know, originally lived. So it's interesting to see the language evolution as well. But then we also ask, is there a place in Melbourne that comes to mind when you have this feeling, when you feel this gate-closing panic? Is there somewhere in Melbourne that you can think of where you can kind of place this word? And it's just, it's so interesting to hear where different people have uh, associated these feelings with in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. It's just such a lovely project in that it's bringing all of these emotions and putting them and dotting them around Melbourne. And it's so based on experience and, you know, how one person's experience of the world differs to the next. And we're looking at all of that through the lens of language. Amazing. That sounds like uh, an incredible research project. I'd be really curious to know a little bit more about why it was important for you to speak to each of these people in the community one-on-one in an hour-long interview, which is, you know, quite a lot of chat, when you kind of already have captured those words in the survey. So what do you get from those interviews that um, really helps to enrich the experience? Yeah, it's a great question. I think while the survey data was amazing to have, it's such an interesting database. The tone that you can get from speaking to someone in an interview is so much deeper than just words can explain. Also, you can understand the intricacies of the language as well. I've had so many people describe to me, you know, the tone of how a word can be used and apply it in two different ways and actually speak to me in the different tones. And it's so much easier to understand the context. It's the same as English where we have these inflections. We can pick up on these intricacies of the language a lot more. It gives people a chance to speak in their language as well. So when I do the recording, I also ask the participant to speak in their language and repeat what they've just said, but in their actual, you know, in the other language that I'm investigating. This might feed into the app and then become background ambient sound in the app. But it also, again, just gives a sense of that tone. Definitely. I would love to just like hear some of those stories as well. I bet they're super engaging and, you know, really help to bring about a bit of empathy with, you know, different languages and other cultures. Yeah, I feel so, after every interview that I finish, I just feel so privileged to be in this position, to be hearing about so many different languages. And to be honest, it's helped me understand my own emotions a lot more as well, which I did not think would be a byproduct of this project, but I'm so appreciative. Basically, I've been able to open up my um, emotional 
language vocabulary because of this project and hearing participants talk about these words that just mean so much to them it just gives you insight into wow. yeah, you know what English doesn't cover all of the emotions it's just such a lovely sort of parallel augmented reality augments our experience in the visual landscape but language other languages can augment our experiences and help us to talk about emotions that we've never been able to express in one word before. That is amazing. <laughs> I've never really thought about the way language really limits our ability to access or make our emotions more tangible. What else are we missing out on? That's so interesting. <laughs> I know. Well, that's, yeah. What are, What else are we missing out on? I'm wondering too. I guess that's why I feel so proud to be a part of this. Amazing. Where can people find out more about 64 Ways of Being? To find out more about 64 Ways of Being, we're on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and you can search 64 Ways of Being on Google or go to 64waysofbeing.com. Thanks so much for chatting with us, Rachel. I'm going to go and Google some words that don't exist in the English language and access some emotions. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. That's, you know, that's literally my job. So good luck. <laughs> Thank you so much. On the last Saturday night before winter, I headed down to Smith Street in Melbourne's inner north suburb of Collingwood to listen. On a usual weekend night, this place would be bustling with people, drifting up and down between the street's famous drinking spots and restaurants. But tonight, there's not much to capture. Just the static hum of the city and the drone of delivery vehicles as they come and go. Tonight, Smith Street is being wrapped, bagged and delivered leaving the street eerily empty. This is Saturday night in mid-COVID lockdown Melbourne. I stop outside an empty shop marked with the number 90. It was here just a couple of months earlier that a weird little bar was serving local beers and adding a unique clamour to Smith Street's cluttered soundscape. This was Bar SK, a bar, gallery and event space for trash art and independent video games. For four years, Bar SK was Melbourne's unofficial shared lounge room, meeting place and gallery space for Melbourne's independent game-making community. Full disclosure, it was one of my favourite bars. In a moment of particularly cruel timing, COVID lockdowns forced the early closure of SK and prevented many who loved going there, myself included, a chance to visit for a final time. So to make up for it, I spoke with a number of artists and game makers who regularly visited or exhibited at SK to capture and memorialise what made that place unique. In this piece, you'll hear from Ian McLarty, Hugh Parkinson, Christy Dosser, Louis Roots, Li Shang Lun, and Joanna Tran, as they reflect on the bar that was SK. So it was kind of a, a sort of a focal point of, I guess, a scene or a, a kind of a, a community of um, artists. There wasn't really a space for people who were interested in, you know, kind of small video games as like kind of expressive works to 
kind of get together on a regular basis and, and discuss ideas and, and share things that they were making. Um, so I think it was, for me, that was, that was K was like a really valuable space for that to happen. It was the kind of center of a, a, a little scene in Melbourne, I would say. What I found really unique about Bar SK was just how much it was this perfect fusion of an inner Melbourne city bar and an art gallery. It would effectively have a new exhibition every other week. You could just walk in there and there'd just be a new set of games, sometimes designed very specifically for the bar or for that exhibition. And quite often really pushing the boundaries of what I guess you could interpret as a game. These were not necessarily things that were going to show up on your Steam front page one day. It was quite often just interactive experiences here and there and um, with a theme. It was wonderful and you didn't know what you were going to get next time you, you rocked up, but that was the fun of it. And I think that the fact that they did so many other, you know, events, whether it was like for gamers or for people who design games or for people that, you know, there was the beer club, all those kind of different types of things were still applicable. And no one, I, I never experienced anyone going like, this person doesn't, doesn't belong or their ideas don't belong or their thoughts don't belong. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that was really a positive thing for just the general community, the like, you know, arts community within Melbourne, because, you know, f for us, I mean, other years we've done workshops in like library meeting rooms and stuff, because you weren't going to be annoying, I guess isn't the right word, but you weren't going to have other people o overhearing or whatever and being sort of confused and not understand what was going on yeah. and just make it uncomfortable. Um, whereas SK, you know, it was it was a place where whatever your little niche thing was, it was still valid, I guess. The best thing about running the bar was the people that would walk in and bring different stuff. Like, it could be random stories over the bar, it could be games, it could be ideas, it was mostly ideas. It was allowing people to bring in a part of them that they couldn't communicate anywhere else and trying to help them set up a show, make a game, um, just exist and communicate to other people and I think when they felt that they could get they could communicate they felt that they were heard um, that was incredibly special to me the the delete jams were a standout for me so I never actually participated in any of those but they were always really good the idea was that um, it lasted one day and people would go to the bar and they would make games during that day and then at midnight that night they would be permanently deleted forever. So well, they would be exhibited at that evening at the bar and then they would be deleted forever. So I remember some, I think um, uh, Li Shang Lun um, made some really standout um, games, um, really confronting games. He had designed this card game where um, every time, I think it fell on Australia Day, so it was kind of about sort of 
Australian kind of masculinity and that kind of drinking culture. Um, yeah, so that was really really confronting work, you know. But I mean, I, I think like I mean, it was a good space to do it in because he had a lot of people there who would, who cared about him and would take care of him. Um, but yeah, really confronting. So when Bar SK came to Melbourne, one of the intriguing points was that its uh, approach seemed to try to uh, bridge the gulf between different sub-communities within games. And that's interesting to me because it revealed a couple of things. First is it, it revealed that we were a fractured ecosystem, which is a positive thing. Um, this is in clear... Uh, contrast to many many years back around the 2010 period where I think after a dramatic uh, industry crash there was a lot of fertile ground for the independent movement to emerge and to find its voice but local game making communities and individuals largely were having similar conversations to each other and were wanting the same thing and so you ended up with a fairly monocultural expression of what it meant to be a game maker. That is to say, the pathway to be someone who made games was fairly set. Um, and now that is not true. Uh, through the tireless work of many individuals working hard to uh, bring about this cultural change, we have so many different groups of people who all want slightly different things, who are all exploring different areas. We've created multiplicity in and an ecosystem that is able to support each other through diversity, but also recognize that we're not all the same, that we all um, can explore our own interests and our own intersections. So Bar SK represented a type of... It, it recognized the fact that that ecosystem was fractured and then invited people to come back together in a particular mode or way and it recognized also that in Australia drinking culture is such a powerful force of bringing people together socially and hopefully um, did that in a responsible and, and useful way so, so it brought together many different communities and I think that's one of its most laudable features. Um, the second thing that I really appreciate is that it was a space for experimentation and acted as a platform for people who don't ordinarily get um, the same kind of opportunities or attention. So it consistently uh, was very avant-garde and experimental in its approach to exhibition design, um, creating bespoke controllers for trash video games and playable media that didn't even uh, qualify themselves as games. That openness led to a very different audience to what you might think of when you think of gamers. It was not a traditional gamer bar, and for that I'm very grateful. You know, the, the sign said trash art bar, and, you know, sometimes it was trashy, and then sometimes it was like a little bit like, you know, the, the diamond in the rough kind of thing where you would find something a little bit magical because you went in there at the right time and there was some, you know game that was being tested that was, you know, amazing or some special beer that they'd brewed up for SK. So, you know, it, yeah, it, they might have, they might have like had the philosophy of like trash art, but like sometimes the trash art is the beautiful art, I think. One thing I remember about Bar SK is that it was a great place for opportunity. 
especially for people who were like me or were in the same position as me. At the time I was in my second year of uni and myself and a few of my classmates had the opportunity to exhibit our games there. It was for experimental games where we were able to showcase our Game of Week games that we worked on for that semester. It was an amazing experience and for myself and possibly many of my peers, it was the first time exhibiting our games. It was a stepping stone for me in terms of the things I was able to do and experience for future projects. One of my fondest memories of Bar SK is of, of running a game there called Art Deck. Now, Art Deck was this drawing game that I'd been working on for a while, and it's quite a messy game at its best, right? It's got charcoal and crayons and all that kind of stuff, so it's always been quite stressful to play or to play test. You've got to figure out somewhere that will let you make a bit of a mess and figure out what you need to cover up and what needs tablecloths and how you're going to clean up afterwards. Or you just have to play it with marker pens and pencils and it's not as good. And Bar SK let me use paint. Let me just haul out the crayons and the paintbrushes and some smears of acrylics and stick the pictures up on the wall when people had finished drawing them and if a little bit of smear of paint got on the wall it didn't really matter it sort of added to the layers of things that had had happened in the space it was a space for things to happen in and if those things left some marks behind then that wasn't just okay that was that was one of the desired outcomes so it was just such a, a satisfying and and different place to play in i mean i made new friends through sk so i think it's like um i think the it's sort of contributed to these kind of communities or that will you know I, i've made friends that i that like i share a lot of common interests with that i don't think i would necessarily met or at least become you know, as friendly with, um, out, you know, if, if Bryce K didn't exist. Um, and I'm still kind of, there's still like a community around that, that, you know, exists maybe more online, in like various discords and things like that. But that's kind of, to me, it's, it's legacy, I suppose. And the third aspect that I like about Bar SK, um, but is also part of its, uh, I guess humanness is that it is incredibly fallible precisely because it was driven by people uh, and that messiness and the drama that occurs in human spaces is part of the fabric of um, how arts become more accessible and uh, and become more uh, democratized in a way so when we recognize that these institutions of arts are actually um, driven by humans and humans in our contradictory uh, fallible nature are prone to do weird things and mess up and do things by taste and not interrogate properly and be liable to criticism and are able to criticize like all of those things are crucial for understanding how we reclaim the the so-called ivory tower of the arts um, and wrest it from the hands of people who have traditionally held power and are now still clinging on to the last vestiges of their political power by saying no actually there's a new generation of 
makers, of people creating change. And we have the resources, but they're not the same kind of resources that you offer. Maybe you don't have the same money, maybe you don't have the same clout, but we have a different type of cultural cachet, we have a different kind of energy. Uh, and with that, we are going to change the world. Not to be too dramatic about it, but like that is the approach that I think um, is embodied by places like Bar SK and other ARIs, uh, artist-run institutions and you know, initiatives. And, and like that's, that's the kind of thing I want to see going forward. Bar SK has closed down, but the spirit of experimentation, the spirit of community, the spirit of um, taking charge uh, and saying, actually, we can create an interesting change and we can be fearless and bold and we will make mistakes along the way but it's going to create new futures is something that i think is very much the zeitgeist of of melbourne games and playfulness at this point in time and that's why i'm so excited to be here um because it, it really feels like that energy gets transformed in different contexts and capacities and people into unique um startlingly innovative work SK was, for me, a reaction. It was an extension of the things I'd done before, but it was also a reaction to the Melbourne culture. And I found it hard to react to that for four years. By the end of four years of reacting, it's difficult to keep up the reaction, if that makes sense. So I am currently sitting back and I will keep a keen eye on everything and like i really can't wait to feel the need to react again i think when that happens i'll make some more sk stuff at the moment uh i'll just have a beer at home playopolis has been brought to you by 64 ways of being a free augmented reality app that lets you see melbourne through new eyes Find out more at 64waysofbeing.com. 64 Ways is a collaboration between myself, Troy Innocent, Millipede, and One Step at a Time Like This, and is supported by the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria. 64 Ways of Being and Playopolis have been produced on the lands of the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. Audio production and research by Angelina Crutchfield, Adam Grant, and Troy Innocent with theme music by Hugh Parkinson and production support by Dewani Sheba Baker. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review in your podcast store of choice. It helps others to find us. Thanks for listening and see you next episode. <laughs>